So our topic for this morning is Marxism, which is a, it's a big topic. There could be a lot to it. Um, we're trying to um, mainly hit the basics, the highlights. Um, and so, you know, you might be wondering, is Marxism really even a religion? And, you know, there's some debate. Um, it wouldn't be the first time we had a debate. We talked about Confucianism, and there's some debate about whether Confucianism is a religion or it's a philosophy. So Marxists would not consider Marxism a religion. They would say it's a philosophy. In fact, Marxists are typically anti-religion. They're atheists. They embrace evolution as the, as the creation or the, how, exists, how we came about to exist in a material worldview. And so they would deny it as a religion, but there's, there's reasons why we might consider it that. Um, and, and one of the books that I use, The Compact Guide to the World's Religions, does in fact consider Marxism a religion. And so um, you can debate over that. I mean, it's certainly, it's been argued that it's like a religion, except instead of God, there's the state. And it has ideas of almost like a heaven, like a utopia uh, that it's looking forward to. So we're going to cover it as a religion. Um, whether you want to call it that or not, we're, we're going to cover it uh, because it has a lot of influence um, across the world. It's growing in influence here in America. So uh, we're going to go through it. Uh, Karl Marx is who it's named after. So Marxism, named after Karl Marx. And again, he would not consider it a religion. In fact, he hated religion. He said religion was the, he famously said religion is the opiate of the masses, as in like a drug, opium, right? And, and his, his claim was, well, religion is used to basically um, trick people who are being oppressed into being okay with being oppressed. That was basically his argument. So he, he would not consider it a religion. Um, but it is... It is a philosophy or a religion um, that is atheistic in nature where the state takes on an important role. Uh, Rick Rude, in that aforementioned Compact Guide to World Religions, does point out that Marxism is a total worldview. It involves not only economics and politics, but also ethics, history, human nature, and religion. And thus he includes it as a religion. As atheist Marxists deny the existence of the creator God, they affirm Darwin's theory of evolution and that there's no supernatural or immaterial realm. And so that there's two main names to know. One is Karl Marx and the other is Frederick Engels. Engels, E-N-G-E-L-S. I mention that because there's another guy that, that influenced them whose name is Hengel with an H in the front. But this is Engels. So Marx and Engels are the guys we're really going to be talking about a lot today. Um, and so they're basically the co-founders of Marxism. Engels writes, the real unity of the world consists in its materiality. Thought and consciousness are products of the human brain and man himself is a product of nature. So there's the Darwinian view. Marxists don't believe in heaven and hell because they believe in this materialistic, humanistic religion. But they see the world and its systems as evolving inevitably toward a communist utopia. That's basically their idea of heaven, their great hope. Murray N. Rothbard has written an article called Karl Marx as Religious Eschatologist. And he says the following... Communism was the great goal, the vision, the ultimate end that would make the sufferings of mankind throughout history worthwhile. History was the history of suffering, of class struggle, of the exploitation of man by man. In the same way as the return of the Messiah in Christian theology will put an end to the history and to history 
and establish a new heaven and a new earth, so the establishment of communism would put an end to human history. And just as for post-millennial Christians, man led by God's prophets and saints will establish a kingdom of God on earth, so for Marx and other schools of communists, mankind led by a vanguard of secular saints will establish a secularized kingdom of heaven on earth. And that's their communist utopia. So that's their goal. And they actually believed it's inevitable. Uh, it, it inevitably evolves in that direction and, ha- and will go there no matter what. I want to define a couple terms that are important. Um, one of those is Marxism, because uh, we have, well, here are words like Marxism, socialism, communism, and I just want to kind of go through what those actually are. Marxism is, <coughs> excuse me, defined as the political and economic theories of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, later developed as the basis of communism. Many would call it, therefore, a philosophy, but again, it could be considered a religion. So again, Marx and Engels, these are the guys behind Marxism. (coughs) Excuse me. Socialism is a political and economic theory that the means of production, distribution, and exchange in a society should be owned and regulated by the community as a whole. So socialism has this idea of the community. Uh, the, the, the production in, in an economy belongs to the community, not to individuals, as opposed to capitalism. Communism is a political theory that der- is derived from Karl Marx that advocates class war and leading to a society in which all property is publicly owned and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and needs. So communism is a system of government built on the philosophy of Marxism. Okay, so those are the definitions. But it's a little confusing because Marx tended to use communism and socialism interchangeably often. Okay, but technically communism is a form of socialism built on Marxist theory. Okay, I'll say that again. Communism is a form of socialism built on the ideas of Marxism. That's really how the three fit together. <clears throat> All right, so let's go into the, theory, the history. How did this come about? You know, where, where do we get these ideas? And, you know, it kind of starts with an idea of everything belonging to a community. And probably this can go farther back than where we're going to start. But it's recorded at least as far back as 300 B.C. with Plato. Okay, so <clears throat> Plato, back in 300 B.C., wrote a book called The Republic. And in this book, he suggested communal ownership of property by the ruling class. He longed for a golden age in which everything would be held in common. And as he puts it, the words mine and thine would be unknown. He imagined an egalitarian society in which every person was devoted to the good of the state rather than concerned with individual needs and desires. And he envisioned this happening by having two classes of people. There would be the guardians, the wise in society who would rule, and then there would be everyone else. The guardians would be rigorously tested and they would own no property. They would live communally to the point that even their wives and their children would be in common. Everyone else, the commoners, could have their own families and land and they would provide for the guardians' needs. His theory was that this would eliminate rivalries and competition between rulers for power and riches and would create a class of selfless rulers devoted to the state. 
Okay, so that was, that's his, his idea as far back as 300 BC. His ideas changed a little over time. In another work of his called Laws, he allowed for individual families among the rulers as well as for property ownership, but with the state ensuring that property ownership, especially land, would not lead to extremes of wealth and poverty. And he wrote the following in Laws. <clears throat> he said, The first and highest form of the state and of the government and of the law is that in which there prevails most widely the ancient saying that friends have all things in common. Whether there is anywhere now or ever will be, this communion of women and children and of property in which the private and individual is to get altogether banished from life, so you're banishing private and individual, and things which are by nature private, like, such as eyes and ears and hands, have become common. And in some way they see and hear and act in common, and all men express praise and blame and feel joy and sorrow on the same occasions, and whatever laws there are unite the city to the utmost. And he says, whether or not this is possible, I say that no man acting upon any other principle will ever constitute a state which will be truer or better or more exalted in virtue. So again, he's calling for this idea of everything being in common rather than individual and private. Okay, Aristotle argued against him, so he had kind of Plato's ideas of the communal property, and then you can, you can research more if you want about Aristotle's view, which was <coughs> against it. But we're just kind of focusing on, on what, what's leading to communist thinking. Uh, in the medieval times, from the late 5th to the 15th century, there were a number of religious orders that held all their goods in common, so some of them were kind of living this out. In 1516, Thomas More wrote a book called Utopia, which proposed common property ownership. And he wrote the following. Unless private property is entirely done away with, there can be no fair distribution of goods, nor can the world be happily governed. This line of thinking continued to grow in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, Halverson attributes this to several factors. Uh, for one, it grew in popularity because of the uh, French Revolution, which emphasized the equality of all people. Uh, the Romantic Movement, which had a high view of man and the idea that it might be possible to have perfect people and a perfect society. So a very positive view of man. And then the Industrial Revolution, which used a large unskilled workforce who was often working in harsh conditions. And that's going to lead to a lot of Marx and Engels' ideas against capitalism. Socialist thinking really began to take off in the 1800s with, I'll give you a bunch of names here, just if you want to study, Henri de Saint-Simon, Charles Fourier, Fourier, Etienne Cabet, Robert Owen, Louis Blanc, Pierre Proudhon, Prosper Infantin, Victor Considerant, and Auguste Comte are among the thinkers who were promoting social ideas in the 1800s. But then we come to 1818, and 1818 is when Karl Marx was born. Okay, so he's going to be the biggest figure here. Karl Marx was born in Prussia in 1818 on May 5th. Here's a picture of him younger and then an older picture. His parents, Heinrich and Henriette, were both Jews descended from a long line of rabbis. Heinrich was a lawyer, but he felt pressured to convert to Lutheranism in order to continue practicing law in the Christian environment around him. 
So Carl was baptized in 1824, and he was uh, considered to be of evangelical faith on his school records. But by the time he started his university education, he admitted he was an atheist. He attended University of Bonn in 1835, Berlin in 1836, received his PhD in philosophy in 1841, and he became a journalist. And by 1842, he met a man named Frederick Engels. Uh, Engels was sent by his parents to Manchester, England, to work in his father's mill. And he had gotten interested in German philosophy, in particular the works of, and here's this other guy I mentioned, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hengel. <laughs> so there's Friedrich Engels, and then there's this guy, George William Friedrich Hengel. Sometimes G.W.F. Hengel with an H in the front and no S on the back. Uh, he was a philosopher, and, and uh, Engels got very interested in his writings, and he rejected his parents' Protestant backgrounds. And he anonymously wrote some articles which were published in a newspaper that was edited by Karl Marx, and that's where he, he encountered Marx in 1842 at the office of the newspaper. So they met each other, did, nothing really happened, they, didn't, they weren't really too impressed with each other, but that's where they first met, 1842, with Engels publishing um, some writing and Marx being the publisher of the newspaper. Meanwhile, Marx marries in 1843 and moves to Paris. He's in, he encounters and is influenced by many other radical thinkers. And uh, he also publishes Engels' first critique of the economy called Outlines of a Critique of Political Economy. Okay. 1844, Engels decided to return to Germany, but he stopped on the way in Paris to meet with Marx. By now, the newspaper that Marx had been publishing was banned, and he was, on, he was on to another newspaper. He had been impressed with Engels' articles, and at this point, the two became friends, and it was a friendship that would last the rest of their lives, and they would collaborate together on their writings. So 1844, they really become friends and start working together. Uh, Engels helped Marx write a book called The Holy Family, the two of them joined a secret revolutionary society called the League of the Just, which aimed to promote an egalitarian society by overthrowing the current governments. That's going to be some of the themes in their, in their philosophy. <clears throat> Marx was kicked out of Paris, moved to Brussels in 1845 with his wife and daughter. Engels left in late 1845 to work with Marx on another book called German Ideology. Meanwhile, Engels' first book, published in 1845, was called The Condition of the Working Class in England. And this, in this book, he was taking note of the poor working conditions uh, for the workers in England. And that, you know, he saw impoverished workers, he saw a grim future for them, and so he was writing against what he saw, what he, what he felt was part of the industrial age and part of capitalism. From 1845 to 1848, Marx and Engels lived in Brussels, and they became part of the German Communist League now, the successor to the League of the Just. And then 1848, it becomes official. In 1848, uh, that league, the uh, Communist League, asked Marx and Engels to write a pamphlet for the League about communism. So they wrote a pamphlet that's pretty well known called the Communist Manifesto. So this is basically the first, first published, real, official statement of what Marxism was. 1848, the Communist Manifesto by Engels and Marx. 
Uh, they worked as political organizers for the League, and then the League asked them to write this to explain communism. And the publication established them as the leading theoreticians of the communist movement. The opening line of the Communist Manifesto says, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. So this is a hallmark of, of Marxism that everything is seen through the lens of one class struggling against another class. Okay, and if you're familiar with what's going on right now with the social Marxism in our, in our country and other places, you see the same thread going. It's a, everything's all about this class is battling each other and struggling. That's, that's everything. It says right there, all history. That's all it's about. History can be simplified down to class struggle, according to Marxism. Basically, they view society as coming down to class warfare. That's the whole thing. Uh, they, their ideas laid the groundwork for the theory and practice of communism, which advocates for a classless system in which all property and wealth are communally owned instead of privately owned. So in Marx's view of the economy, uh, capitalism divides people into two classes. So capitalism, of which they're critical, breaks the, the world into, or society, into two classes. One is the, the bourgeois, bourgeoisie, bourgeois, but then you have to add a C on the end, the bourgeoisie, which is the owners of the means of production, and then the proletariat, the workers. Okay, so you break into those two groups. You could think of them as the owners and the workers if you don't want to try to say bourgeoisie. <laughs> bourgeoisie, proletariat, owners and workers. Yeah. <clears throat> what did he mean? Where does this come from? Well, picture a business with workers. Let's say a factory. So you have a factory and the workers are making whatever the factory is producing. Widgets, let's call them. The owner pays the workers to work. But then he marks the price of the widgets up so that he can make, the, make a profit, right? Does that make sense? So the workers get a certain pay, they make a thing, and then the owner marks it up and the owner gets the profit. So Marx feels this is unjust. He's saying the owner gets all the profit, the workers should get the profit because they're the ones that built the thing. They're not getting the profit. So he considers this exploitation of the workers. Britannica explains his thinking here. The value of labor power is determined by the amount of labor necessary for its reproduction. But in the hands of the capitalist, the labor power employed in the course of a day produces more than the value of the sustenance required by the worker and his family. The difference between the two is appropriated by the capitalist. In other words, the capitalist is taking the profit, and the workers aren't getting it. That's the argument. <clears throat> Uh, Joseph Schumpeter in Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy writes, Capital buys the labor power and pays the wages for it. By means of his work, the laborer creates new value, which does not belong to him, but to the capitalist. Again, that's when you mark up what's been created to sell it. Basically, Marx is arguing that it's contradictory and unjust for the owner to benefit to make the profit rather than the workers. And you, you've heard some of the language. It's all built on the backs of the workers, but the owners get all of the money. That's the kind of thinking that's behind this. Okay? Uh, you may have been hearing similar arguments in our society recently. Um, I, I watch a little bit of sports. I probably follow it more than I watch it. But in sports, this has been going on recently. Uh, you've probably heard arguments uh, in sports, the NFL, the NBA. Uh, many in the media have been promoting the idea that the NFL is built on the backs of the players. 
So they should be getting all the profit, not the owners. The owners are oppressing the players because look how rich the owners are. And then they bring race into it because a lot of times, you know, you have African-American players and you have white or other owners. And so then race becomes an issue in that discussion. Now, certainly there may be a wealth of profit. And in some cases, workers are treated unfairly. But I question the reality that in, in this sport, in which athletes are making millions upon millions of dollars, that this is accurate. And there's, there's a couple things we need to consider. One, people are often making a zero-sum assumption. Okay, zero-sum. This is an important idea. The zero-sum assumption, it serves to pit classes against each other. And what it basically says is gain for one is loss for the other. It's an oversimplification. If one group, the owners, is benefiting, let's say NFL owners, is benefiting and making a lot of profit, it's at the expense of the players. Gain for owner, loss for player. It's like, that's how it has to be, according to the zero-sum argument. In other words, there's no such thing as a mutually beneficial arrangement. I would argue that the NFL is a mutually beneficial arrangement. In which, yes, the owners are making lots of money, so are the players. It's not a situation where someone's being oppressed by, by the other. It's a mutually beneficial arrangement. The zero sum says there's no such thing. It oversimplifies everything and says there's basically an oppressor and an oppressed. You can't have mutually beneficial. Um, so it promotes an us against the mentality. It promotes animosity. It promotes thinking of yourself as being oppressed by the other And so that's an oversimplification that's being applied in that situation. Another oversimplification, and I don't mean to talk about the NFL so much here, but just this is just just talking about some kind of business here. Another oversimplification is that you're not considering the owner's investment and risk. Right? The owner is wealthier, but he or she is also the one who's spending millions or billions of dollars to buy the franchise, to build a stadium, to purchase insurance who risks millions of dollars on new hires, and so on. So the players are playing. The players are the face of the league, if you will. But the players aren't the one investing and risking on the same scale as the owners are. The owners are taking on more risk. If they lose, they lose more. They lose bigger. So there can be an argument made that the larger risk would seem to justify a greater part of the earnings. The same would go for a corporation. Who buys the business? Who builds the building? Who pays the utilities? Who pays for insurance? Who loses more if a tornado destroys the business? If the tornado destroys the business, the worker can probably go to a different job and do a similar work, but the owner's got to rebuild the whole thing. The owner's got to take care of all that. The owner's lost everything. So he's taking on more risk as the owner. So it's not so simple to just be like, okay, they're making more money. They shouldn't be, but they're also taking more risk. And again, aren't both benefiting in that situation? Aren't the owners making a truckload of money and aren't also the players? So it's an oversimplification to say that it can never be mutually beneficial. But Marx and Engels believed this. They believed that it was contradictory. They believed that it had to be basically pitting groups against each other. And it made the fall, they argued, it made the fall of any capitalist system inevitable. So they said, basically, there's contradictions, and this can never continue. It is inevitable that a capitalist society will fall. And they wrote this. 
What the bourgeoisie therefore produces, above all, are its own grave diggers. Its fall and the victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable. Okay, and what they say is what must happen is a radical transformation, and that can only happen through revolution. That would be the prelude to the establishment of communism and the reign of liberty reconquered, as they put it. So revolution is the key. Revolution is how you transform the system. <clears throat> Investopedia writes, Marxism posits that the struggle between social classes defines economic relations in a capitalist economy and will lead inevitably to a communist revolution. And they add that Marxism, uh, Marx predicted that capitalism would eventually destroy itself as more people become relegated to working class status. Inequality rises and competition drives corporate profits to zero. This would lead, he surmised, to a revolution after which production would be turned over to the working class as a whole. So revolution is what has to happen and is inevitable in this situation is what he's arguing. The revolution would be led by what he called the vanguard of the proletariat, who are enlightened leaders who understood the class structure of society and would unite the working class. So their argument was that revolution had to come, and then would come socialism. Revolution would get rid of capitalism and bring socialism, and then another revolution would happen, and socialism would lead to communism, and that it was inevitable. So it basically looks like this. You need a revolution to create socialism. That's what has to happen. And then another revolution that's going to create communism. And they believe this is inevitable. Okay, the last part of the Communist Manifesto. We saw the opening. Here's the closing of the Communist Manifesto. It's basically a call to revolution. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communistic revolution. The proletariat have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. So the final call in the Communist Manifesto is basically, rise up, unite. Um, they're calling for the revolution. Uh, speaking of revolution, in 1848, there was a revolution in France that led Marx and Engels to leave Brussels and go back to their homeland in Prussia, where they worked as editors for a newspaper. In 1849, a coup in Prussia forced Marx to Paris and then to England, and Engels eventually went there as well. Um, Engels was in Manchester, Marx was in London, and they corresponded daily with one another, and they started anticipating a revolution in Russia. Okay, so their theory would be that R R Russia was coming out of like a feudal system, so what had to happen first was a revolution against the feudal system that would bring Russia to capitalism. Then there had to be a revolution against capitalism that would lead them to socialism and then a revolution out of socialism that would lead them to communism. That's the path. That's how they understood um, these, uh, these systems and how it would transform and progress. By 1881, they started to consider that maybe it was actually possible for Russia to enter into a communist stage without going through a revolution because there were uh, village communes that were common in Russia at the time, and they thought maybe because that's already in the culture and they have communes, there was a way that it could be more peacefully accomplished. So they, maybe they weren't as, as completely sure about a revolution being necessary. In 1883, um, whoop, I already showed that. That was the picture that how feudalism leads to capitalism, capitalism leads to socialism. 
through revolution. And then in 1883, Marx dies. Okay, he died in London. Six people went to his funeral. His works were not widely read until after his death, but then they would have a huge impact on the world. So Engels spent the last years of his life writing and editing Marx's remaining volumes. Marx wrote his, probably his greatest work is called The Capital. It was in three volumes, and Engels continued to work on those until they were published in three different editions. After uh, Engels dies in 1895, we come to 1900. The Austrian school with Austrian socialists uh, started publishing their works separately from the Germans, but similar ideas along the socialist ideas. And one of these guys in the Austrian school was Vladimir Lenin. And he would end up adapting Marxism to Russia. So the Russian Socialist Democratic Party divided into two groups, the Bolshevik, which means large, and the Menshevik, which means small, and Lenin headed up the large, the Bolshevik, which became its own party in 1912. So he's heading up a Marxist party <coughs> called the Bolsheviks in 1912. During most of World War I, Lenin is in Switzerland organizing socialist conferences to oppose the war. As the war neared its end, there was a Russian revolution in 1917, by which the uh, monarchy of Russia was replaced with a provisional government. And then later in the year, the Bolsheviks under Lenin took power from the provisional government. And that's how Lenin rose to power in Russia. So by 1917, Lenin is in power. He's going to bring Marxism to Russia. <clears throat> there is a note that it's, there are some differences. Um, between Lenin and Marx, he applied, so sometimes they call, call their form Marxist-Lenin. They put both together. Uh, but so one of the notes was that Lenin believed that it was necessary for the Communist Party to take control of the revolution rather than expecting the working class to instigate it on its own. So, so in his, his formation, they got all the power instead of it being with all the workers. It goes to the Communist Party. Um, he also believed that they would have to take tight control of the society after the revolution, and that's definitely what they did. Uh, Britannica says that Lenin called for a party of professional revolutionaries, disciplined and directed, capable of defeating the police, whose aim should be to establish the dictatorship of the proletariat. And his second difference was he believed that capitalism had not disintegrated as Marx predicted. So Marx, again, he, he viewed that it was inevitable that capitalism would just basically start to fall apart. And it didn't seem to be happening around the world. So Lenin didn't necessarily agree with that. And he thought it was because of capitalism going out into the third world countries. And he, so he believed that a communist revolution would take place in a non-industrialized society like Russia. But it was harder in the industrialized societies. So there were some differences. Uh, but he basically took Marx's ideas and he's applying them to Russia. In 1922, the Soviet Union forms from the, from the independent socialist republics that were there at the time. There were four of them. They basically joined together. The Soviet Union was formed in 22. In 24, Lenin dies. Joseph Stalin rises to power gradually. And he, he, he was a horrible dictator who who's considered responsible for killing at least 20 million people. So, so it was a pretty terrible situation. He, he instituted a brutal totalitarian rule in the Soviet Union. <clears throat> After World War II, communism spreads to other countries and regions like China and Eastern Europe. And then um, 
After that, we started to see some of the societies collapse. In 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed under economic crisis. And then there were other, other communist countries that that proceeded to happen as well. So we started to see communist societies collapsing uh, based on economics. Um, so, you know, that's been going on. But while all that's been happening, Marxist influence con continues in society. And it's actually become rather embedded uh, currently in our society, especially through education and media. It's kind of in a new form that we might call social Marxism. Okay, this especially got prominent with calls for revolution back in 2019, 2020 with the Black Lives Matter organization. A Pew Research study shows that views of socialism and capitalism in 2019 and, and 2022, and it shows that the numbers are, they've gone down a little since 2019 where they surged, but still, I don't know if you can see this, but you can see the, see the approval of like positive and negative views of socialism. So back in, in 19, May 2019, uh, this is in America, 42% were somewhat positive or very positive in view on socialism. Okay, that's an example of, of the thinking in here in this country um, that it's getting popular, right? And among the young who are going to the schools and they're being educated in this kind of stuff, um, it's sounding appealing to some people. So we had about 42, 43% altogether who viewed it favorably uh, back in 2019. It's gone down a little. The 2022 study shows it's dropped to about 36% now. But still, that's a third of the, over a third of the country that is in favor and thinks positively on socialism um, <clears throat> and, and Marxist kind of ideas. All right, so briefly, I want to touch a little bit on cultural Marxism because that's what we're looking at right now, a lot more in society. I'm not going to go very in-depth. There's a lot of reading you could do, a lot of books that would help really go through the origin of this and uh, a lot of the details but uh, I'll, I'll just kind of go through some of it to give you an idea and hopefully to show you how it ties in with the actual Marxism that Marx started. Okay, so what's cultural Marxism? Well, it has other names, uh, some of which it might use and some of which others might use to describe it. So cultural Marxism is also known by the names of social justice or ideological social justice sometimes. Intersectionality, cultural Marxism is the one that I'm using, and then critical theory is also related to that. Uh, a lot of these things were recently applied in the, in the areas of race, but critical theory can be applied to other things too. So there's a, there's a critical race theory and there's critical other theories. So just critical theory is cultural Marxist talk. It, that's what it is. It's cultural Marxism. Critical race theory was one of those that was coming up a lot a couple years ago and still, but there's other critical theories. All right, so according to Wikipedia, critical theory is any approach to social philosophy that focuses on society and culture to reveal, critique, and challenge power structures. Okay, that's one of the definitions of critical theory. Okay, where did this, this idea come about? Just a brief history. If we go back a little bit on our timeline... We were at 1922, the Soviet Union forms, 1924, Lenin dies, and Stalin rises to power. Right between those, in 1923, a Marxist professor named Karl Grunberg from Vienna University 
uh, went to Frankfurt, Germany, and started a place called the Institute for Social Research. It's better known as the Frankfurt School. So if you do any kind of study about, about uh, critical theory, you're going to hear the Frankfurt School. This is what it is. It started in 1923. A Marxist professor in Germany, Frankfurt, Germany, started the Frankfurt School, or it was officially called the Institute for Social Research. This is where critical theory really began with a group of German philosophers and social theorists in the Western European Marxist tradition. In 1930, Max Horkheimer took over for Grunberg as director, and he recruited many of what they would call the first generation of critical theorists, uh, and then Britannica explains what they did, what they were doing. They tried to develop a theory, a theory society that was based on Marxism and Hegelian philosophy, but which also utilized the insights of psychoanalysis, think Sigmund Freud, sociology, existential philosophy, and other disciplines. They used basic Marxist concepts to analyze the social relations with capitalistic economic systems. This approach, which became known as critical theory, yielded influential critiques of large corporations and monopolies, the role of technology, the industrialization of culture, and the decline of the individual within capitalistic society. Their stated main goal was to address structural issues causing inequality. So that's the Frankfurt School. In 1933, the Nazis rose to power in Germany. They shut down the institute. So the Frankfurt Institute came here. So it moved from Germany to the U.S., where it found a new home at Columbia University in New York. And the actual term critical theory was coined in 1938. It remained at Columbia until 1949, when it was able to move back to Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, 1980, we had a, a, the second generation of the Marxist philosophers there at the Frankfurt School. And at this point, the school starts to turn global. Its influence is starting to reach other uh, into Europe, over here, all over the world. And it really hasn't looked back since. So that's a really brief history of it. Uh, what can we say about cultural Marxism? Well, well, number one, it's not a traditional theory. It says this. It, it says it's not a traditional theory like social or scientific theories. What does this mean? Well, I hesitate to show you this, but one of these things, some of these things when you try to read um, their jargon, their, just their writing, is so hard to sort through even what the thing is saying. So here's an example. Just try to understand what this is saying. Uh, but they start using these, and then they throw in German words because of the German philosophy, and it can get really hard to just go through you know, what they're talking about. But I'll give it a try here. Um, so it says, traditional theory, whether deductive or analytical, has always focused on coherency and on the strict distinction between theory and praxis, which is like application. Along Cartesian lines, knowledge has been treated as a grounded upon self-evident proposition, or at least propositions based on self-evident truths. Accordingly, traditional theory has proceeded to explain facts by application of universal laws. That is, by subsumption of a particular, a particular to a universal in order to confirm or disconfirm this. A verificationist procedure of this kind was what positivism considered to be the, very, to be the best explicatory account for the notion of praxis in scientific investigation. If one would defend the view according to which scientific truths should pass the test of empirical confirmation, then one would commit oneself to the idea of an objective world. Knowledge would be simply a mirror of reality. This view is firmly rejected by critical theorists. 
So out of all that, what, what, what is that telling you? It's not based on an object, a belief in objective truth, right? So this is, this is postmodernism. So it's Marxism mixed with postmodernism because it's like you can't know the truth. There's no objective reality. Oh, traditional theories say that you have this idea and you can test it scientifically to confirm or to disconfirm something, but those ideas kind of go out the window. So we have a theory where we don't really have to confirm or disconfirm the claims of the theory. That's interesting. That's very convenient. Yeah. Which is postmodernism for you, right? So basically they're saying it's not like regular theories in which you have a theory and you try to verify whether it's true or not. Because when you're doing that, you're assuming an objective world in which knowledge is a mirror of reality. That's exactly what we assume, right? <laughs> right? Truth, truth is what is real. Right? That's what we would say. It reflects reality. Right? It's what's, that, what's true. Uh, so it, this says that critical theorists reject this idea. They reject that truth is that which corresponds to reality. They, they say there's no truth, no objective world, therefore no way to truly verify hypotheses and test theories. Dr. Elizabeth Depoy, in, in the book Introduction to Research, says critical theory is not a research method but a worldview that suggests both an epistemology and a purpose for conducting research. The debate continues on whether it's a philosophical, political, or sociological school of thought. In essence, critical theory is a response to post-enlightenment philosophies and positivism in particular. Critical theorists deconstruct the notion that there is a unitary truth that can be known by using one way or method. In order to check whether something is or is not the case, one must verify empirically whether the stated fact occurs or not. This implies that the condition of truth and falsehood presupposes an objective structure of the world. Horkheimer and his followers rejected the notion of objectivity in knowledge by pointing, among other things, to the fact that the object of knowledge is itself embedded into a historical and social process. So you can see where this is going. Critical theory aims thus to abandon naive conceptions of knowledge impartiality. Since intellectuals themselves are not disembodied entities observing from a God's viewpoint, Knowledge can be obtained only from a societal embedded perspective of interdependent individuals. Postmodernism. <clears throat> uh, so, cultural Marxism is not a traditional theory, it's postmodern in its origins. Britannica writes believing that science, like other forms of knowledge, has been used as an instrument of oppression. They caution against the blind faith in scientific progress, arguing that scientific knowledge must not be pursued as an end in itself without reference to the goal of human emancipation. Okay, well, I don't, I mean, usually what we'd be looking for if you do a study is you're looking for the truth, right? That's supposed to be the goal. The goal of gathering data, testing something, is to actually come to what's true, which we believe there's such a thing as objective reality, what's true. What they're saying here is that they're coming in with, the, with a certain goal in mind. Whether you want to call this a bias or you want to call this a goal, the whole goal isn't to find the truth. The goal isn't to figure out what's going on. The goal is what they call human emancipation. Which, among other things, is assuming that there's a need for that and that that exists, right? So they're assuming all of this stuff and then saying, this is what's needed without any sort of proof. That's what's going on here. So they define truth in their own way, a very authority. 
Well, they're accepting the Marxist philosophy of class struggle as a given. And then they're saying, this is, this is a given. This is what's going on. And our whole purpose is to bring about revolution, to get rid of it. So it's not really like what's going on in society. Where's the racism? Where's the injustice? Where are these things? It's just to explain it away and say, well, it's built in in these class struggle that's going on like Marxism says. And here's what you do. And there's not really, really a scientific establishment that this is what's going on and this is what you need to do. They are above the classes. They're on. They have extracted themselves as the knowledge or the science to then look down and decide what the other classes need. You know what I mean? Like they're the ones making the decisions, opinions, or putting the classifications on those classes that are struggling against one another. Like they're above even the classes. Sure. They're the yeah. knowledge or the power of that to determine. Yeah. Yeah. So however you want to put it, it's coming with an inherent assumption and it's coming with a goal that isn't to find the truth. The goal is to accomplish what they call human emancipation. And I'll show you in a minute that means revolution. That's what it means. Revolution like in the Marxist idea. Okay, the, the definition from Britannica of cultural Marxism or critical theory is that it's a Marxist-inspired movement in social and political philosophy originally associated with the work of the Frankfurt School. Drawing particularly on the thought of Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, critical theorists maintain that a primary goal of philosophy is to understand and help everyone overcome the social structures through which people are dominated and oppressed. So see, that's the goal. And the assumption is that's what's going on. Okay. Whatever, yeah, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's popular. It's in the, it's in, it started in more the education, right? Because it started through the Frankfurt School. Yeah. All right, one more big quote. As a philosophy within the social sciences, critical theory refers to the prolific work of several generations of German thinkers. Uh, mentions Frankfurt School again, Horkheimer. And again, just the, the goal is liberating human beings from the circumstances that enslave them. Critical theory is rooted in historicizing, critiquing, and exposing the relationships of domination and subordination, as well as the contradictions in which humankind is entrenched, and thus, in essence, is a liberator philosophy. Such critique focuses on deconstructing how knowledge is produced, whose knowledge is valued, and how control of such knowledge equates to power, with the purpose of preventing people from becoming slaves to the ideas and activities that societal institutions push upon them. Critical theory is the umbrella term for the neo-Marxist-based work that originated in the 30s at the Frankfurt School. And they, uh, the school themselves called their mix of theory, research, and philosophy critical theory for their intent was to critically analyze capitalist society, culture, and Western civilization to find ways of making a revised form of Marxism viable. So that's really the undercurrent of what the point is. The point is you're coming in with the whole goal of critiquing the society and swaying it towards Marxism. That's what the goal is of, the, of this thinking. Okay, so the ultimate goal is a Marxist revolution. Okay, and yet you have instances like in 2019, the Southern Baptist Convention, this stuff's getting in the church as well as in our society. The Southern Baptist Convention in 2019 adopted Resolution 9 on critical race theory and intersectionality in which they labeled these things helpful tools for the church. 
in diagnosing and addressing social ills. So they've been, it's coming into the church, they've embraced uh, these as helpful tools. Okay. Um, what else? Let's move on to the next. So let's go to what are, some, what are some key beliefs and ideas in Marxism? Okay, so key beliefs in Marxism. Materialism, we mentioned this. Marxism denies the existence of God and embraces an evolutionary materialistic view of the world. That's one important hallmark. The dialectical process. So if you remember that guy Hegel I mentioned, not Engels, but Hegel. Hegel, this is his thing. They call it the Hegelian dialectical process. If you look up Hegel, it's a lot of gobbledygook, but in the end, uh, what it comes down to is, is an assumption about how things work that's not really proven, and it, it, I think it's an oversimplification. But here's basically what it says. All things are in a process of development. That's the assumption. And this development takes place through the interaction of opposing forces inherent in all things. These forces are called the thesis and the antithesis, or antithesis. Through the conflict of the two forces emerges a new entity called the synthesis. Marx and Engels believed that they saw this process at work in nature, and they also believed it was at work in history through the economic and social advancement of humanity. They saw this as an inevitable process of change based on scientific social laws. So, so basically they see two competing forces that have, to, ha, that have to be fighting, have to compete, and in the end... It has, something has to come out that's a synthesis that's, well, they call it the synthesis, the solution. And in this case, they're talking about classes. They're applying it to the two classes. That's what Marxism does. So it's, view, again, viewing the world through a lens of there's just two classes in battle. That's how it is. That's the world. Economic determinism is another key in Marxism. Basically, economics determines everything about society. Uh, Engels wrote, in every historical epoch, the prevailing mode of the economic production and exchange of the social organization necessarily following from it form the basis upon which it is built, which is built up from which alone can be explained the political and intellectual history of that epoch. And so, so what he's saying is everything can be tied back to economic, economics. Uh, economics de- determines everything. In, for the cultural Marxism, we've lately been seeing this with race. Instead of economics determines everything, race determines everything. Race determines who you are. Race determines which group you're in. Race determines if you're a racist or you're not. So race is determinative in the social uh, Marxism. But for the Marx Marxism, it was economics. Economics determines everything. And then, of course, the class struggle. Marxists view the whole history as a class struggle. We saw this quote earlier. The whole history of mankind has been a history of class struggles, ruling and oppressed classes. That's the view of all history. Okay, they, so the view then was to move forward, to progress, society had to go through a series of revolutions. This is the full thing. I mentioned kind of the end of this before, but Marx and Engels viewed there to be six stages, five different revolutions that have to happen in societies to progress. They, start, they say a lot of societies, would, they start with tribal communalism, where they kind of share everything on a tri- as a tribe, but then they go through revolution and leads to a slave labor society. A revolution takes that to feudalism. Another revolution takes that to capitalism. A revolution takes that to socialism, and another one takes that to communism, which is the ultimate goal, the ultimate utopia. 
Another hallmark of Marxism, critique of capitalism. Um, that's what it's actually, its focus is, right? As we, as we saw, the critical theory, actually, that's their goal. Their goal is to critique capitalism with the, with the intent of bringing a revolution to bring about Marxism. Uh, they have a belief in the final stage of history. That's communism, the, the ultimate, the utopia. Their view of ethics. Obviously, they don't have a view of God, so there's no morality that comes from God. What are their ethics? Well, for Marx, it was whatever advances communism is moral. It's basically an ends just justifies the means. Whatever advances communism. That's good. And that's really dangerous if you think about what that says. It doesn't matter what you do to who. As long as it's good for communism in the end. That's pretty scary. Um, and you can see how this could lead to many atrocities, and it did, in fact. Especially you could think of, of uh, Stalin and what he did. And then critique of religion. Marxists, again, don't usually consider their views a religion. They would say they're opposed to all religion. Marx called religion the opiate of the people. Here are some other thoughts. Lenin, every religious idea is unutterable vileness of the most dangerous kind. That was Lenin's view of religion. On your sheets, then, we have uh, kind of a comparison. So I just want to mention a couple of these things. So there's a table I gave you of kind of the, the views here between Marxism, social Marxism, and Christianity. The views of God, humanity, morality, basic human problem. We've covered already, uh, Marxism says there's no God. Um, it, it has an evolutionary view on people, but also on even society and economy. Um, but they believe that people have evolved from animals and their nature is determined by the economy for traditional Marxism. Um, but if it's uh, social Marxism, it's determined by whatever it is they're studying, whether that's race, sex, gender identity. One of those things uh, is the determining force, depending on which branch of social Marxism you're looking at. Morality for traditional Marxism is whatever advances communism. For uh, social Marxism, it's whatever disrupts the existing power structures and defends the, what are called the oppressed groups. And the basic human problem, I mean, essentially, the basic human problem is oppression, according to the Marxist views, while we know that the basic human problem is sin. And, you know, that's one of the huge things. If you think about, you know, what's gone wrong with communism and what's wrong with capitalism is People are sinners, right? So, so one of the things that they don't understand is you go through all this and you try to change all these things and what they didn't account for is the wickedness of the human heart. You can try to have people live whichever way, communal and whatnot, but you've got sinful, selfish people, regardless of which system you use. And so certainly you see abuse of capitalist system. You see people doing all kinds of evils in capitalist systems and communist systems. You see both because that's not the issue. The change in the economic system isn't the answer. That's not the problem. Um, so the solution, according to Marxism, is revolution. Overthrowing the economic system or overthrowing whatever uh, structure they're, they're saying needs to be torn down. And we know that the only solution is Jesus. Jesus to overcome our sin, to overcome evil and injustice. All right, so finally... I'm trying to get through the last part because I want to allow you, you a little bit of time to look at some questions at the end. 
Um, so a couple comments, tips for witnessing to a Marxist. I mean, you know they're coming from an atheistic worldview. So you, we've talked a little bit about that. Uh, certainly when Jason talked about postmodernism, we've talked a little bit about that. Um, so I'm just going to give some general tips here. One is acknowledge the sins of many capitalists and religious people. Because that's one of, one of the things they're going to say, right? In the critique, one of the points of Marxism is to critique capitalism, to critique religion. Well, we should be willing to admit there's all kinds of terrible things that have been done by capitalists and religious people. So we're not defending all religion, right? So be willing to admit that, uh, but show that those behaviors are in fact because of sin. And those behaviors are against the scripture. Encourage an objective evaluation of Marxism and capitalism. Does human nature change with a change in the economic system? Is the idea that the ends justify the means really true? And we want to show that the issue is really the sinful human heart, which will not be changed except for through Christ. Show the inherent contradiction of speaking of morality while denying the existence of God, from whom good comes from, right? So, and, and so what, what, what are we even talking about? Good and wrong and right and unjust and just. If there's no God, it doesn't really make sense. It's just your point of view. Point to the practical effects of Christianity in, in individuals and in society, the good things that have been done as well. And then focus on Christ, not capitalism. We don't want to argue for capitalism, so, right? We want to talk about Christ. Focus on Christ. You could talk about communism not working, but we're not really wanting to argue with someone about the pluses of capitalism. We want to get to Christ. So focus on Christ. And then, of course, ultimately, the most important thing is to pray for them because you can't change their heart. All right, so I've got some questions for you to take a look at if you have time. I mean, we've, we've got a little bit of time for you to go through some of them. Um, well, the first one's kind of interesting. Uh, maybe you thought of this. Some people have said this to me at times. Doesn't the Bible teach socialism or communism? So I'll let you wrestle with that. Give you a few verses to look at. Does the Bible teach communism or some kind of communalism or not. And, uh, and then there's a few after that. So um, I'm going to close in prayer. And then if you can spend some time, if you've got any questions, raise your hand. I'll come on over. Um, well, let's see if we can at least look through a couple of those questions. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this morning. Uh, Lord, um, we thank you that, that uh, we have your word, the truth, that we can uh, test these, uh, these philosophies and these religions against the truth. And Lord, uh, that we could see uh, where they're left wanting. Um, but again, uh, Lord, we pray that as, as we have opportunities to witness to people, to talk to them about Christ, that that's what the focus would be. It would be about Christ, that we wouldn't get caught up in, in arguing over things like capitalism, um, but that uh, we would be pointing them as soon as we can to Christ and, and to the need for Christ, that he's the answer, um, that, that sinful hearts need to be regenerated, and only he can do that. Lord, we thank you for this time today that we've had, and we just pray now for a good discussion as we look through some of these questions. May it be fruitful. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.